Hello? Hey, um, I need help. Sure, what's going on? I've been having doubts. About what? About everything. I feel like no matter how hard I try, I can never live up to the standard that Jesus set. If we were capable of living up to Jesus' standard, there would have been no reason for him to die. I get that, but I still feel like my sins are pushing me back when I'm supposed to be freed. As long as we're on this earth, we'll all battle with something. That's why I keep bugging you to get more involved, so you can see you're not alone. Yeah, but if they knew my past, they wouldn't want anything to do with me. <laughs> you think you're the only one with a past they'd rather forget? Have you seen a baptism video recently? Yeah, I guess you're right, but how do I push through this? Just stop letting the enemy push you around and remember that you're not going through this alone. I'm a Christian, but I still, dot, dot, dot. A brand new series today. I'm very excited to start this series. Take out your bulletins. It looks like this. In the bulletins is a note page, and it looks like this. And we're going to cover four topics that we uh, will still wrestle with as Christians. Thus, the phrase, or the name of the series, I'm a Christian, but I still, dot, dot, dot. So four weeks. Week number one is today. I'm a Christian, but I still doubt. Somebody say doubt. I'm a Christian, but I still doubt. Next week, I'm a Christian, but I still wander. I still mess up, sometimes for long periods of, of time. What do we do about that? I'm a Christian. Uh, the third week will be, I'm a Christian, but I still feel empty sometimes. And we'll talk about that. And then the last week is a surprise message which is pastor speak for, I don't even know what that one's going to be, but <laughs> it's going to be good and you're going to want to be here. I, come, I have a couple ideas, but I'm bouncing around with the staff and some people and just seeing where we think we need to go with the last part of the series. Come for all four weeks or at least catch it online if you can't attend. Mark chapter 9 is where we're going today. Mark chapter 9. And let's get right into the scriptures, shall we? Let's go right to the passage together and stand, if you will, with me. For the reading of God's word, Mark chapter 9, verse 14, and here's what it says. And when they came to the disciples, now the they there, the they is Jesus, and then his three inner disciples, Peter, James, and John, who have just come down the mountain of transfiguration. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration, it's actually Mount Horeb, but, but it's the mount where Jesus was transfigured before his three inner disciples. So they come down the mountain, and when they, when they came to the disciples, the other nine, Verse 14 continues, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them, the nine. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, that's Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth. And becomes rigid, so I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. 
and it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I just love that line. Verse 25, and when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask that these next few moments are governed by the will and the purposes of the Holy Spirit. This is your church. These are your people. I am your servant. This is your word. We are gathered here because of you and for you. Lead us forward in faith for the person here who's doubting, questioning, struggling. May they receive a word for them. Help us to see Jesus and him only. In his mighty name we pray and everybody said a big amen. amen. God bless you. Have a seat. Have a seat. The theme of this series is on the top of your notes there, and I want you to see it there with me. It's up on the screen. Christians have not, do not, and will not have it all together. Can I get a good amen for that? Okay, good. The sooner we embrace that reality, the sooner we can come to terms with the joy that is the journey of faith, moving ever closer to the goal of God's glory. We are not perfect, and we will not be perfect until Jesus comes again. Unfortunately, there is a tremendous pressure on the Christian community, the church community, to fake it, to act like we do have it all together. And we all know this is a myth. The fact is Christians are in process a work in progress. We even talk about our faith as walking with Jesus. A walk in and of itself is a process. I have two dogs now, and ever since I got two dogs, I've done a lot more walking than ever before. And I walk them on a regular basis because I feel bad for them. I go out, I have fun, I go to work, I come back, I go out to dinner, I come back home. They're just sitting there looking at me like, hello. Do something with me. So we take them for walks. And the walk has a destination. The destination is always back home. But the process takes time. And we need to remember that our faith is a process. It is a journey that God is leading us forward in faith. And to stop pretending like we've arrived. I don't think it's healthy for a church to fake it. And I know that we fake it every single time we come into this place. I know it. 
I know it because I've been in the church my whole life and I've watched and I've experienced it and you have too. How many know there are some Sundays when you get up to go to church and all hell breaks loose in your house? And then you get into the car and you're starting to wonder, why are we even going to church? And on the way to church, you start arguing with each other about all the things that you did this past week that annoyed each other. And before you know it, you're starting to think about calling the lawyer after church. <laughs> I am going to divorce you and leave you high and dry. I'm so sick of you, you bug me. And then you walk through the doors of the church and you say, hello, how are you? Good to see you, God is good, hallelujah. And there are people in this room right now that feel like you're the only person that goes through that. I got news for you. We all do it. We all go through this stuff together. And it's so easy to fall into the trap that, to feel like you're the only one. You're the only one that struggles. You're the only one. And everybody, look at them. Look at them singing and worshiping and lifting their hands and, and listening to the pastor. They look so together. And I'm just not them. And why do they look so much more together than I do? And, and if you could just do this for a moment, just do this for a moment. I know it's awkward. Just look to the person to the right of you, to the left of you for a second. Just look, look right in your left, right and left, right and left. Ready? Okay. You know what you see right there? Faker! Hallelujah! Faker! Now, I am glad that you're faking it to some degree. I mean, I don't want you just unloading and vomiting all over everybody today emotionally. We have prayer at the end of the service for that very thing. So there is a social contract that we all have agreed to that for a few moments we're going to sit quietly and act like we know what we're doing. But for the most part, we know that our real world is filled with ups and downs, with mountaintops and valleys, with good weeks and bad weeks, with good months and bad months, with good decades and terrible decades. And the hope that we have is not in how we're doing. The hope that we should have is in what God is doing along the way and in the process of making us who he wants us to be. The journey. The Bible in Mark chapter 9 records a man who brought his son, demon-possessed, to Jesus to get the demon cast out. He brings him to the disciples. The disciples fail. Jesus comes and arrives on the scene, and this whole passage centers on verse 23 and 24, where Jesus says to him, all things are possible for one who believes. There's a lot of pressure on us to believe, a lot of pressure on us to be good, but I think there's more pressure on us as Christians to believe we can even get pressured. Sometimes if we read the Bible, we can get pressured to believe because it says in the Bible, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Oh, the pressure to, to act like I'm always believing. I'm always having faith. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul says the, uh, that we walk by faith and not by sight. And all over the Bible it says the just shall live by faith. The pressure can be real. And Jesus in this passage even says all things are possible for one who believes. You want to please God, believe. Christianity is about having faith. And then this man cries out, I love it, immediately. I believe. Help my unbelief. In other words, there, there's a part of me that doesn't believe. Oh, man, if there's passages in the Bible that I am absolutely grateful are there, it is this one. Thank God somebody said it. I mean, now, 
Mark 9, 24, I believe, help my unbelief. We're not gonna be putting that on coffee cups. We're not gonna be, hey, you want some coffee? Here, take my unbelief cup, here you go. We're not gonna put that on a Christian t-shirt. I believe, help my unbelief. <laughs> but I'm thankful it's in the Bible because the Bible records real people, not fakers, wrestling with, struggling through, belief, doubt, questions, sin, ups, downs, emptiness, fullness. Thank God the Bible's real. A recent Gallup survey said 65% of all Christians have experienced long periods of doubt at some point in their life. And 35% of Christians are lying. I think we all do in some way. I'm just kidding about that 35. That wasn't in the report, but younger generations doubt twice as often as older generations. Men doubt more than women. But the concerning statistic was of those who experienced spiritual doubt in the last two decades, 45% of them left their place of worship. Which as a pastor, I said, that's concerning because I don't want you to leave just because you have doubts. I want our church to be the church for people who aren't there yet. I want our church to be open to anybody and everybody from whatever walk of life that God the Father calls you from. There was a time when I wasn't there, and you weren't there, and you weren't even a believer, and God called you, and thank God for the church and the Christian that welcomed you in as you were. I want to be the kind of church that nobody is feeling like they're excluded from, but they come as they are, and they can even kick the tires, so to speak, of Christianity, explore the claims of Jesus, and come to saving faith over the journey, the process through which God brings them to himself. I want to be a kind of that kind of church, the church for those who are not yet here. I want you to bring your friends who don't believe. I want you to bring that that, that obnoxious coworker who harasses you about you, bring them. That's who we want. So don't leave just because you have doubts. I think about three guys in the 1940s who started a movement to reach the young people of this, this country in the 1940s. They, they started a movement called Youth for Christ. We know two of them by name. Well, one of them really we know by name. The other one I'm gonna mention. The first one was named Billy Graham. The second one of the three was named Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton was thought by many to be the one. Many people said he preached better than Billy Graham, he was smarter than Billy Graham, he was handsomer than Billy Graham, he was the one. He, he appeared on CBS TV, preaching the gospel, he appeared on the radio, he had a daily program. But in 1947 he had a crisis of faith and came to start doubting the elements of the Christian faith. And then he enrolled in Princeton Theological Seminary and by the end of his education, he had left the Christian faith altogether. And in a conversation with Billy Graham, shortly after leaving the faith, he tried to convince Billy Graham to do the same thing. And he lived the rest of his life as an atheist. He became a national figure in Canada and then a public television broadcaster. At the age of 80, he became diagnosed with Alzheimer's and was fading away. And a young upstart former Chicago Tribune journalist named Lee Strobel went to interview him. Lee Strobel, who had made the exact opposite journey into faith that Charles Templeton made away from faith. And he wanted to know what was it about this man? What were his steps on the way out of faith? 
And he writes about it in the book, The Case for Faith. And Lee Strobel gets to one point when he finally asks the only important question is, what do you think of Jesus? And Charles Templeton's words stunned Lee Strobel to silence. He said he was the greatest human being who ever lived, a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was intrinsically the wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. His commitment was total. What could one say about Jesus except that he was a form of greatness? Strobel writes, I was taken aback. I pressed further. You sound like you really cared about him. Templeton responded, there have been many other wonderful people, but Jesus is Jesus. In my view, he is the most important human being who has ever existed. Lee Strobel writes, that's when Templeton uttered the words, I never expected to hear from him, quote, and if I may put it this way, he said, as his voice began to crack, I miss him. With that, tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head and looked downward. Shielding his face from Lee Strobel, his shoulders began to bob as he wept. Then gathering himself again, he waved his hand dismissively and said, enough of that. And he died outside of faith. You see, doubt is inevitable. It's what we do with it that matters. Some of God's great men and women have doubted. What do you do with it? I want to give you first, before we get to what we do with it, I want to give you first the categories for why we doubt. Four categories. Number one, experiential. Trouble. What you experience can cause you to doubt that there is a God. Has someone backstabbed you? Has someone abused you? Were you molested as a child? Did someone take advantage of you? And you think to yourself, if there was a God that loved me, he would never have let that happen to me. Experiential doubt. Why would, God, why would a good God allow evil to happen? And if there is a God who is all good, why is there evil in the first place? There's a whole category of, of, of theological study for that. It's called theodicy, the problem of evil. And many great and wise people before us have wrestled with this in ways we could only scratch the surface of. Experiential doubt, this is what this man says. He says, I brought my son to you. And the word you is in the emphatic here in verse 17. I brought my son to you, Jesus, and you weren't here. And then I brought him to your disciples, and they couldn't do anything. And he's got a demon, and it seizes him, and it throws him to the ground, and he foams, and he grinds his teeth, and it becomes rigid. Now listen, it's one thing to wrestle with that kind of sickness or that kind of demon for yourself, but it's a whole other issue when you watch your child wrestle with it. And he was given, hand, handed over an experiential reason to doubt that there is a God who loved him. Number two category is evidentiary. Well, I just don't see God working in my life. Or I prayed and nothing happened. Where's the evidence? And I remind you that, that he comes to the church that Jesus started and he gets nothing. He's not coming to a backwoods church in the middle of Mississippi. He's coming to Jesus himself and his original 12. And he gets no evidence that there's power with them. Verse 18, I asked your disciples to cast it out. 
And they were not able. And this is interesting because in Mark chapter 6, verse 1, it already talks about how the disciples had cast out demons and had healed the sick and had laid hands on people and seen them recover. And now they can't. Were those just strange occurrences and now that's really not true? And some people are like that. I don't see the evidence for God. I, I don't see anything that, that says to me with hard evidence that, 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 that he exists. Evidentiary. Number three, doubt-causing category, strange word, ecclesiological. Ecclesiological, the word ecclesiological means the study of the church. Ecclesia, the Greek word for church. Ecclesia, you turn it into a scientific study. Ecclesiology. You say, Pastor, why didn't you just say the church? Well, because the first two begin with E, and I love alliteration, so I had to stick with E, so I went to this word. I'm sorry. So if you don't want to write ecclesiological, just say, sometimes the church stinks. And many of you know this. Sometimes the church stinks and gives people reason to not believe. Some of you are new to Waters Church. Welcome. Unfortunately, you think that you have arrived at the gates of heaven. What a place. Look at this, these people. Oh my goodness, I have finally found a perfect people. Wrong. We will let you down. Just give us time. Bunch of messed up people up in here. Take your pick of failed church people to doubt the existence of God. Pedophile priests, Baptist ministers who run away with their secretaries, televangelists who are fraudulent with money, the preacher who rails against homosexuality, and then a little bit later you find out that he was a closeted homosexual all along. Or it could just be very simple. It could be just the the Christian at work who's a jerk. One of my favorite television shows is The Office. Who's the Christian on the show? Angela, who also happens to be the most judgmental, hypocritical, mean-spirited character in the entire show. You say, that's just like Hollywood. They just hate Christians. Well, they're just writing what they know. Someone in the writing staff of the office had an Angela in their life and wrote her in. Sometimes the church can give you plenty of reasons to doubt that there is a God. I, I've been there. And you must be careful not to put your faith in the people for whom Christ died instead of putting your faith in the Christ who died for you. Be careful about that. They came to the disciples, the Bible says, and they saw a great crowd around them in verse 14, and the scribes are arguing with them. And I love this moment because the scribes finally saw an open door to criticize the work of Jesus. The scribes were the sworn enemies of Jesus. They didn't like him. They were just looking for holes in his testimony, holes in his ministry. And here we go. The disciples fail. We got an opening. Let's go after them. And so they start a debate. Have you ever been around Christians who debate? and they debate theological constructs that have no relevance to human existence. And they can't even fellowship. They can't even be friends because they believe one like 
third tier level thing differently about each other and so they can't even talk to each other. It's ridiculous. It's so stupid. And the world looks at us and say, I don't need more drama in my life. I have enough relational strain already. Thank you very much. Arguing. Churches that just bicker and fight. And Christians who don't talk to each other for decades because of something that happened once. Number four category that causes doubt. I, escalation of evil. Escalation of evil. Again, sticking with our E theme here. I got two E's on this one. But let me just explain what I mean. Sometimes when you come to Christ and take the next step forward in Christ, sometimes things get worse and not better. So you get baptized and you think, okay, now the devil's done with me. Uh-uh. You think he's going to let you go that easy? You think your old relationships are going to be okay with you? you? You think that it's going to be easy to live for Christ in a world that is dominated by the powers of Satan? And you have to read your scriptures. You have to read because the Bible says when, when Moses brings the Israelites out of Egypt, he brings them out one day. The next day, they're being chased by thousands of chariots by Pharaoh's army, and they start screaming at Moses and saying, what have you done to us? It's getting worse, not better. And then they get out into the wilderness, and they start getting hungry, and they start complaining and moaning, and then they're wandering and going nowhere. They're on the journey, and then they start reminiscing about Egypt, and they start thinking about the past through rose-colored glasses, and they say, didn't we have plenty to eat? Didn't we sit around fires? Didn't we eat the garlics and the leeks and the onions? And this fellow Moses, we don't even know where he's bringing us, and they start to reminisce about the old days, and be careful, Christian, lest you do the exact same thing. Maybe I was better off not doing this Christian thing. Maybe I was better off before I got involved with Waters Church. Maybe I, maybe I needed to just go, that was just like a phase. It was like a college phase. Let's move on from that and be careful because when you enter the Christian faith, you enter into a fight that's been going on for ages. A spiritual conflict in the heavenly realms that you, you ignore to your own detriment. Fight the good fight of faith, the Bible says. Take up the armor of God and distinguish the flaming arrows of the devil. Implication being that the devil is throwing those arrows at you on a regular basis. The question is, will you raise the shield of faith to, to extinguish them or not? It's the escalation of evil. When they brought the boy to Jesus, the Bible says in verse 20 that the spirit saw Jesus and it immediately convulsed the boy. Understand, he just brought him to Jesus and now the boy doesn't get better, he gets worse. And he foams and he rolls about. And then right after Jesus cast the demon out, look at verse 26. Right after Jesus cast the demon out, it says that the demon cried out and convulsed him terribly. Meaning worse than before. It came out and the boy was like a corpse. And we're in the bad habit sometimes of reading the Bible through too fast. So let's slow down here and see that the demon comes out. The boy is lying still like a corpse looking dead long enough for someone to say he's dead. A demon-possessed son is one thing. A dead son is a worse thing. And so for the moment there, it looks worse. The escalation of evil. And I want you to see that these four categories, that maybe you have one or two or three, maybe all four, but this guy had all four. He had all four reasons to doubt that God was good and that God existed. All four reasons. But he doesn't. 
Do you know why? Because when life really hits the fan, the theoretical reasons for why we doubt really don't add up. When the chips are down or when life stinks and when we don't know what to do, even the most hardened atheist is tempted to say, God, if you're there. When life rots, doubt offers nothing. So Jesus enters in to this moment, disciples arguing, scribes accusing, the boy foaming, the son, the father, delirious and, and, and depressed. And, and it says, he, when they saw him in verse 15, they were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted the word, means saluting him. They paid him homage. And, and you have to ask yourself, why were they amazed when they saw him? And I think it's because he just came down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and I think he was still glowing. You know the story, right? Jesus brings Peter, James, and John, his inner three disciples, up to the top of the mountain where he is transfigured, the word in Greek, metamorphosi, where he is transfigured before them and his face becomes radiant like the sun, his clothes whiter than any launderer's soap could wash them, and then Moses and Elijah appear and start having a conversation with Jesus, and Peter just is like overwhelmed, and he says, Lord, it is good to be here. Let us make some booths. Let's make some tents. Let's habitate up on here. And there's a voice from heaven. On top of all that, there's a voice from heaven that says, this is my son. Listen to him. And so Peter and James are like, yes. I want to stay here. And Jesus is like, no. We got to go down to the valley. Quick lesson, the mountaintop experiences of the Christian life are not for us to stay at the mountaintop experience, but to come down from the mountain and help some people who are struggling in the valley of the shadow of death. To go where Jesus goes and to be a help to people who are around us and are hurting. I know we want to live on the mountaintop experiences. It just doesn't happen. He gives you the mountaintop experience so that you can do something about the problems in the valley. And... Uh, Again, the interaction between Jesus and the Father. Jesus saying, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the Father says, I, uh, I do believe, but help my unbelief. And just that last phrase, help my unbelief, is a beautiful picture of how we are to handle our doubts. So what do we do? Number one, we realize that in the Christian life, we will struggle, I will struggle, with faith and unbelief as a believer. He says, Lord. He doesn't say teacher. He says, Lord. I believe, help my unbelief. I am a believer, but I still have doubts. Welcome to the club. Great men, great women of faith have struggled with doubt. Interestingly enough, Billy Graham himself struggled with doubt. At the same time, Charles Templeton was walking away from the faith. And he went to a retreat in Pennsylvania after a, a, a terrible Billy Graham crusade in Altoona, Pennsylvania. Many people think all of his crusades were great. He felt like a total failure. This was in 1947, total failure. He didn't feel like he was gonna make it in the ministry. And he, he walked out into the woods and he laid the Bible on a stump, on a tree stump and said, Lord, I don't even know if this is true anymore. I'm struggling to believe it, but here's my commitment to you. I'm gonna take this word as it is, your word, and I wanna see you bless it. And it turned the tide in his ministry. And it became Billy Graham because of that moment, the milligram we know because of that moment. But what I'm trying to tell you is he struggled with doubt himself. C.S. Lewis, Charles Spurgeon, Martin Luther, 
Great men, great people struggle with doubt. How about the scriptures itself written by people who had doubts? We know Peter had doubts. We know Peter had doubts because there's a moment in the scriptures where Jesus is walking on the water and Peter goes from a moment of incredible faith to a moment of terrible doubt. Remember? He says, Lord, if it's you, call me to come out. Jesus says, go ahead. So he goes out onto the water. This is an amazing moment of faith. Would you have done it? I wouldn't. Peter's like, okay, all right, here we go. Look at this, it's working, it's working. And then he sees the wind and the waves and he begins to sink. And he says, Lord, save me. And, Peter, and Jesus says, oh, you a little faith, why did you doubt? He's walking on water for heaven's sakes. <laughs> but Peter went from great faith to great doubt in five seconds. Has that ever happened to you? How about the disciples themselves, the rest of the disciples? Let's not just pick on Peter because Matthew chapter 28, and Thomas, by the way, doubting Thomas. Let's not pick on just those two. Matthew 28, when Jesus is going to the Father, he is risen from the dead. They've seen his nail marks in his hands. They've seen his nail marks in his feet. They've seen him for 40 days after the resurrection. They watched him eat and move through walls and do weird Star Trekky stuff. And, and, and they're about to see him go to the Father, and it says when they saw him in Matthew 28, 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Some, plural, more than one. I love this moment, because Jesus is about, he's rising, he's ascending to the heaven, and they're like, oh, I love you, Jesus, I love you. There's all this, like, I'm not sure it's you. I'm not, but they look like they're sure, so okay. <laughs> right? I love that moment. And Jesus is like, okay, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, so go and make disciples of all nations. And like, I'm not sure it's you. He's like, I've been working with failures my whole time on this planet. Go and make disciples. Love that. And Habakkuk, the great Old Testament prophet, Habakkuk 1 verse 2, opens his book with, how long, oh Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen Exclamation point. David, the king, the giant slayer, writes in Psalm 13, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And the great prophet Jeremiah, I don't have it on the screen, but Jeremiah, who preached, the God, who preached the word of God to the nation of Israel for 23 years and made exactly zero converts. 23 years of preaching, zero converts. You'd have doubts too. <laughs> and he says in Jeremiah 20, Lord, you deceived me. You tricked me. Brings his doubts to God. Great men, great people, great women have wrestled with doubt. It's the process of faith, the journey. Os Guinness writes, if ours is an examined faith, we should be unafraid to doubt. If doubt is eventually justified, we were believing what clearly was not worth believing, but if doubt is answered, our faith has grown stronger it knows God more certainly, and it can enjoy God more deeply. You're not supposed to shove your doubts down inside and pretend like they don't exist. You're supposed to wrestle with them, bring them up, and, and talk about it, and, and look through it, and, and, and examine it. I've done this. You should do this. Don't pretend. Number two, 
This is how you wrestle with your doubt. I must commit to faith practices through my doubts. I must commit to faith practices through my doubts. Again, so many points from one simple phrase, help my unbelief. Three faith practices in that one phrase. Letter A, he was honest about his doubts. This is called the faith practice of confession. What is confession? Acknowledging before God what we do that's not right. Confession is a lost art in the modern church movement. I know we don't have confessional booths. It doesn't mean you shouldn't confess. I know we don't publicly confess together, but it's in the Lord's Prayer, for heaven's sakes. Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our trespasses. In other words, every time we're to pray, every time we're to talk to God, we are to tell him, I have failed. Here's the failures. And to let him know and to bring it to him. And so I've got a question for those of you who have doubted. Have you ever brought those doubts to God? Have you ever told him, Lord, sometimes I don't understand you. I have done this myself. The reason why I've done this myself is because I read the Bible and I learned how his people of old did it. Interestingly enough about the name Israel. Do you know what the name Israel means? God's chosen people. Do you know what Israel, the word, means? It means wrestle with God. You want to be a true Israelite, you better do some wrestling. Wrestling with the Almighty. Abraham did this on the verge of Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed. He said, will you not, the judge of all the earth, do what is right? In other words, I can't imagine you destroying a whole civilization. And he argues with God. Oh, I love the scriptures. This is why I love the Judeo-Christian vision of who God is, because we are not... We are not subjects of a totalitarian celestial state. No, we are children who are asked and actually expected to wrestle with a father who loves us but sometimes does things that confuses us. And that's okay. But take them to him. Let her be, he asked for help with his doubts. This is the faith practice of prayer. Help me. Praying to God in your doubts, what Billy Graham did in the woods of Pennsylvania in the 1940s. A hallmark moment for his life to wrestle it out and bring it to God. Help me, Father, believe when I don't believe. And then let her see, he committed to the helper in the doubts. And why do I say, what, what's the difference between this and the other one? Because this is the faith practice of attending faith-oriented events. Because the word help, when he says help my unbelief, is in the present perfect in Greek, meaning that he was saying, keep on helping me. So what he's really saying is, I doubt now, and I'm sure I'm going to doubt later. Can you please be there when I doubt later? And here's what I would say to you. You've got to learn how to make yourself get to the house of God even when you don't feel like it. Faith practices, commit to them, commit to them. In this first series of the new year, I did a series called New Year Happy, and I told you guys, you want to have a happy new year? Make a habit out of getting to the house of God every single week. Understanding, please, that the enemy, the spiritual warfare in the heavenly realms that you're experiencing every day is going to make every attempt possible to keep you out of the house of God every week. He's going to do everything that he can to keep you out. And you've got to force yourself to go. I don't feel like going. Go anyway. I don't want to go out of bed. We go. Well, I'm not sure I even believe. So what? Come. 
It's like, it's like a gas tank in your car. Yeah, I hate it when I see empty. On my gauge, it's empty. Oh, I gotta go to the gas station. I hate the gas station. <laughs> I hate pulling off to the road. I hate stopping. Only a fool would say, I don't feel like it. I know I need gas, I don't feel like it. And you're just waiting for a breakdown. You are waiting to run out. Stop listening to your feelings. Your feelings are the worst part of you. They're always in flux, they're always changing. You've got to realize that an adult, an adult, regularly does things they don't feel like doing. That's what makes them an adult. <laughs> Children follow feelings. Adults reject following feelings because they know what's logically beneficial to their lives. What's logically beneficial to your spirit is to get to church when you don't feel like it. To, to tell the devil, not today, Satan, I'm going to the house of God and I am going to listen and I don't even know what's going to happen, but I believe that when I hear the word of Christ, faith builds up in my life. And, and I love the fact that Jesus listens to this man say, help my unbelief. He does the faith practices. He commits to the faith helper. And in spite of his unbelief, verse 25, Jesus answered his prayer. I thought that God only answered prayers when I really believed. Oh, man. If that's how it always went down, God would never act anywhere. Here, there's a funny moment in Acts chapter 12 where Peter is in jail. James has been beheaded. Two of the inner three disciples of Jesus. Looks like it's the end for them. Peter's in jail. There's a house church praying for Peter to get released. Lord Jesus, please release Peter from prison. The Lord answers, and he sends an angel into the prison. The angel opens the door. Peter walks out. The guards are asleep because of the angel. Peter walks out, walks to the house where they are praying, knocks on the door of the house during their prayer meeting, and the girl goes and hears as Peter, comes back and says, it's Peter, and they're like, oh, he's probably dead. It's his ghost. <laughs> While they are praying for Peter's deliverance, the answer comes, and they don't even believe the answer's there. But yet God answered the prayer. Sometimes the best thing that you can offer to God is a half-hearted, half-faith-filled prayer offering that you yourself don't even think he's going to answer. And in his loving, gracious mercy, he answers it so that you learn to trust him when you don't feel like he's there. And he, and he speaks to the demon, I command you, come out of him. Never enter him again. And after crying and convulsing terribly, the demon came out, and the boy looked dead, and the people said he's dead. But it's not over. Number three, if you're taking notes, our struggle with doubt does not stop Jesus from finishing his work in us. Our struggle with doubt does not stop Jesus. There's a scripture, Romans 8, 28, we know in all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. We know in all things, all means all we know in all things, including doubt, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So just because you have your moments and your weeks or your months or your decades of doubt does not mean that God has stopped working on you. 
So when, just hang tight for one moment, please, because the Bible says that after crying out, the demon leaves the boy, and the boy looks like he's dead, but Jesus, verse 27, took him by the hand and lifted him up. So you have to see the picture that I see, dead. And Jesus bends down and grabs the dead, lifeless hand, and as soon as he starts to lift, the boy starts to get strength back into his body and breath back into his lungs and his eyes pop open and his ears start hearing as people are in awe of what Jesus has just done. He has just raised a dead boy back to life again. And this is a picture, friend, of our faith. Because we were dead and God made us alive. The Christian experience, the Christian conversion experience is not that Jesus comes to good people and makes them better people. The Christian conversion experience is that Jesus comes to dead people and he makes them living people. Now, for anyone to go from death to life requires two things. The first is an act of God. And the second thing is external influences. Meaning no dead person has ever made himself alive again. That's why we call them dead. They are now powerless to do anything. So external, external circumstances have to come into the death and bring it to life. And that, my friend, is the conversion experience of every Christian. Because Ephesians 2 says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. It doesn't say we were good. It doesn't say we were almost there. It doesn't say we were nice or kind. It says we were dead. That's who we were. That's who I was. Before Christ, I was dead. Spiritually speaking, I was dead. But Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says, but God made us alive together with him. By grace you are saved. And the point that I want you to see here is you don't come to Christ because you did something. You come to Christ because he did something. He resurrected you from death and brought you to life in his name and for his glory. And I just want to tell you that the same God who did that for you in the past, don't you understand? He will do that for you in the present. So that when you feel beat up by doubt and act out of gas and feel like you're not going to make it, don't you understand that the same God who called you is the same one who's going to complete you? He's the author. He's the perfecter of your faith. That's why he's the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And he's never failed a single project he started to this date. So even in your doubts, you can have faith in his faithfulness in spite of you, as you walk the up and down roller coaster ride that is the journey of faith.